You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. On March 4th, 1933, an awkward car ride took place. The weather was cold, but the ride even colder, perhaps, as Herbert Hoover shared a short motor car ride with President-elect Franklin Roosevelt. Few changes of power would be as tense as this one. Not only was Herbert Hoover upset about losing the office, not only did he know that he'd be tagged perhaps with the worst economic disaster in modern times, due to, among other things, Roosevelt's campaign, but he also felt the man that he was giving up the White House to was a dangerous man, an immoral politician who would give up everything, sacrifice everything, even destroy the country, perhaps, for his own political benefit. Few changes of power have been that tense. You know, one imagines Lyndon Johnson closer to the foreign policy of his successor, Richard Nixon, than uh, his party's nominee, Hubert Humphrey. One thinks of John Tyler, the Whig president, handing off the office to Democrat Polk. Although they were different parties, Polk was in full agreement with Tyler's Texas policy. In fact, Tyler probably felt that Polk's very election was an endorsement of his own presidency. One imagines William Howard Taft, no friend of Woodrow Wilson, but probably happy to see Wilson beat his once friend and former mentor and now intense rival Theodore Roosevelt. We can imagine Grover Cleveland handing off the office to William McKinley. Now, though McKinley was a Republican and Cleveland a Democrat, no doubt Cleveland was happy to see McKinley elected over the silver-loving radical nominee of his own party, William Jennings Bryan. The very friendly transition between Reagan and Bush, the then-friendly 1909 ceremony between Theodore Roosevelt and Taft before they had their spat, President Grant locking arms and marching up the steps with Rutherford B. Hayes, who had worked so hard to see elected. Jefferson overseeing a friendly transition, with James Madison, his successor. The 1977 transition between President Ford and President Carter, and although they had contested the election intensely, Carter had some kind words for Ford and everything he'd done to heal the nation. And the two became genuine friends after that. And at least in 1933, the President, Hoover, and the President-elect Roosevelt were riding together, albeit a very silent ride. President-elect Grant refused to ride in the carriage with President Andrew Johnson, as was the custom. Johnson and Grant had had a number of run-ins when Grant was the commander of armies and Johnson the commander-in-chief. Of course, in 1800, President Adams did not attend Jefferson's inauguration after all the insults and attacks of that 1800 campaign. The tenseness surely resembled that that would happen later in a bitter cold day when Kennedy the last president to wear a top hat to inauguration, would share the ride with the former commander of U.S. forces during World War II, 
Dwight Eisenhower. Who would warn him that if he yielded one inch on communism, he, Eisenhower, would be speaking out against him? Something that put the fear of God into Kennedy, elected by one-tenth of one percent of the vote in 1960. And I should say here that I don't see any evidence that the Bush-Obama transition is or will be all that tense. There are many reasons why political observers might suspect that it would be. The Bush administration has been one of the most partisan, one of the most forceful uh, in modern times. Politically, the two are polar opposites. Yet, circumstances right now are forcing uh, both Bush and Obama into the same place in a variety of issues, but most notably the economic steps and the bailouts and the intervention of the federal government in the economy. And there may be some unity in the enemies they have. In a GOP party ready to move on, Bush is not all that popular. He's being blamed for the loss of Republican seats and for the loss of John McCain. And while Bush may not have much chance at a legacy at this point, whatever chance he has would not be helped by an ugly transition. So, I think they'll be just fine with their car ride. In the case of Hoover and Roosevelt, much of the tension came from what occurred in the interregnum between Election Day and inauguration. The bad news of the Depression, now three years old, just increased with a series of bank failures. Hoover, with his old sense of economics, feared that it was Roosevelt's statements during the campaign that had caused the problems. The banker feared that Roosevelt was going to raid the Treasury and give people money from the federal government and tax everyone. He urged Roosevelt to please make a statement, abandoning what he had said during the campaign, to a sense to reject his campaign and declare that he would move quickly to balance the budget. Roosevelt's advisors laughed at the move. Roosevelt himself ignored the message and gave no response whatsoever. Hoover viewed this as bizarre, an example of Roosevelt putting politics over policy. He thought Roosevelt was a madman. He had done something disastrous for the, comp- for the country for his own political benefit. And things were to get worse. More people went to the banks to demand money, that the banks could not produce, and at the time, in 1933, no federal government could provide. Hoover was committed not to interfere with business. Governors of states, in some states, declared bank holidays, while FDR bided his time. In any event, there was little that either man could do about the situation, the large gap between election, where the people have spoken, and where the people's choice would actually take office. This choice at the time of March 4th was insisted upon by the Confederation Congress. This is the Congress that seldom met, but uh, met on a few occasions in Philadelphia before the Constitution was written and ratified. They set the date that the new executive should take office at March 4th since the decision would be made finally by the electors, and probably in about December, it would allow for travel time. And it took a lot longer in 1787 to travel the United States than it did in 1933, when there were airplanes available. The first president, Washington, didn't take office till April 30th, due to the travel problems that Congress had meeting there wasn't a quorum sufficient to count the electoral votes 
uh, in the capital, which at that time was New York. The time in between election and inauguration allowed Franklin Roosevelt to get the advice of experts on the crisis and to pick senior staff for his White House and his cabinet. Some Franklin Roosevelt loyalists from New York, Harry Hopkins, James Farley. A few Republicans, Henry Wallace would be his uh, Secretary of Agriculture, were put in the cabinet to much applause. And for Treasury Secretary, the respected Henry Morgenthau. 1933 was not the only year that there was a noticeable problem with the five-month gap between presidential election and inauguration. The other period in history, one that had many people asking whether or not the transition period should be shorter, was the transition between James Buchanan, the Democrat who refused to do much of anything as South Carolina seceded from the nation and began to seize federal property, and Abraham Lincoln, a Republican committed to stopping the expansion of slavery in the United States, a man whose very election had triggered the crisis. Springfield, Illinois, was by 1861 a bustling Midwest town with two- and three-story brick buildings and most modern services one would expect in towns of that time. But the tallest building in the city was, of course, the Illinois State House. And from the second floor of that building, Abraham Lincoln, the man who had been elected leader of the United States, took an office lent to him by the governor of Illinois. And Lincoln there sat silent during the volatile election of 1860, all while his opponent, Stephen Douglas, stumped through the South and the North. Now, during the period between the election and inauguration, Lincoln remained there and did everything he could to remain silent. After all, such was the behavior of a president-elect. And with James Buchanan still president for five more months, there was very little that Abraham Lincoln could do to affect the executive branch. In Washington, D.C., no one seemed to be waiting for the new president to act. In Congress, a committee on the State of the Union was formed to do something about the crisis with South Carolina seceding and other states having conventions to decide whether to secede from the Union or not, based on Lincoln's election. This was a powerful committee comprised of men of influence, of wide-ranging opinions, and of different geographic backgrounds. Robert Toombs of Georgia, staunch supporter of slavery, and Ben Wade of Ohio, an abolitionist, both sat on the committee. Stephen Douglas, the compromiser from Illinois, and John Crittenden from Kentucky, an old senator and also known as a bit of a compromiser himself, lent the committee serious prestige. This was a committee that could work out a deal that would perhaps avoid war, but that also might spread slavery to the new territories in the United States. Meanwhile, in the Willard Hotel in Washington, D.C., a peace convention was formed, with delegates from 23 states, 137 delegates all, described by some newspapers as senile old men, met to discuss the situation. Perhaps there would need to be a, quote, adjustment of federal policy. What would that mean? And who gave 
this committee any power? Were they seeking to overturn the presidential election or seek some kind of influence or solution in Congress? As their president, they elected John Tyler, the former president of the United States. From Springfield, Abraham Lincoln feared that compromise would come, and it would be in the form of a betrayal of the main issue that they had fought so hard for in the election, that slavery might be allowed westward. Lincoln made it clear throughout the campaign, and now during the transition period, that he had no plans to end slavery where it existed now in the South. But the territories, the new territories of the United States, were off limits. Slavery was not to be expanded. His hope, and the hope of some more moderate Republicans, was that if slavery were quarantined, left in the South, eventually it would die out. Although it was unbecoming of a president-elect to speak out publicly, Lincoln wrote many letters from Springfield to allies in Congress, Elijah Washburn, and other congressional allies, asking them to hold their position like a chain of steel. Lincoln spoke through these letters of congressmen in ways perhaps more effective than public statements. It was a difficult time. Even serious abolitionist Republicans were looking at the possibility of some kind of compromise in order to avoid a war that no one wanted. Republican congressmen weren't sure quite what to do. But as Lincoln wrote in one of his letters, the dangerous ground on which some of us are tempted is in popular sovereignty. Have none of it, wrote Lincoln to one of his congressional supporters. Popular sovereignty, of course, being the idea that a state could vote whether it would be either free or slave. The problem with that, as happened in Kansas, is that... Both sides would be in a rush to get to the territory to then vote. The elections would be contested and contested again, and there would be bloodshed. So the popular sovereignty idea didn't really work that well. In this way, Lincoln was the cheerleader and coach of the team that was now on the field, the Republican congressman, urging them to hold the line until he could take office. Lincoln's letters raise an interesting point. Had he not spoken... Had he not given any instructions as to what his Republican allies were were to do, it's possible that there could have been some compromise from either the Peace Convention or the Congressional Committee on the State of the Union. Perhaps that compromise would have meant that the Civil War would have never happened, or it might have just meant that it was put off for a little while, while slavery continued in the United States. Instead, he urged his supporters to block, filibuster, do anything they can to stop and stall attempts for popular sovereignty or to allow some kind of spread of slavery into the territories. Eventually, Lincoln did make a public statement after President Buchanan failed to act that he would secure federal property, forts, mails, arms and munitions depot. He would secure them from attack. It was signaling that he would be more aggressive than the Buchanan administration had been. Lincoln was also busy in Springfield having meetings with important political figures who were taking the train into this new western town to see the soon-to-be president. He met with New York boss Thurlow Weed, 
man who controlled a lot of the action in the East Coast in the Republican Party. And it was decided that Seward would be Secretary of State. Now, though we didn't like it, Lincoln informed him that he would be making Simon Cameron, the boss of Pennsylvania, his Secretary of War, or give him some adequate position. Lincoln used his months in transition well, in fact, by the time he left Springfield and set out to visit New York, Philadelphia, and Trenton to shore up support on his way to Washington. He had chosen his famous team of rivals, the powerful group of men, Seward, Chase, Montgomery Blair, Cameron, people who were rivals in some cases with him and certainly rivals with each other. Through allies, he also saw that word got to General Winfield Scott, then the commander of all armies in the United States and the hero of the Mexican War that he would be seeking a more aggressive military policy. In the weeks before the inauguration, Winfield Scott used the army well, displaying military parades and showing that he took the security of the president and the city seriously. Winfield Scott was immediately prepared when war broke out for an action plan against the Confederacy, a plan that actually survived and was the successful plan for most of the Civil War. Although Lincoln would have an unusual inauguration, sneaking in in the middle of the night to throw off a plot to assassinate him, his transition had helped, and Lincoln hit the ground running as a president. By all rights, Jimmy Carter should have been a president who had just such a transition, for he had started the planning process very early, earlier than most presidents have. It was in April when Jimmy Carter had won the Pennsylvania primary. And as a Southern, a newcomer to the Democratic Party, winning a Northern industrial state was a big win for Jimmy Carter, the surprise nominee of 1976. One of Carter's aides, James Watson, took stock of the situation and realized that a man who had no network, no executive experience, no legislative experience, no friends and allies in Congress or in the various departments of Washington. A man who was unknown in Washington society might become the President of the United States. The situation was urgent, Watson told Carter. And he convinced Carter to allow Watson to set up a transition early so that everything would be in place if Carter became president. And so Watson started in April of 1976. Now this is nine months before Carter would become president. Plenty of time. Watson wasted no time. He set up a computer. And remember, this is 1976, and a computer is a big expense and a big deal. With all of the previous federal applicants to positions and all of the current federal office holders, which sorted their various qualifications. He mapped out a strategy for what Carter should do on each day of his transition when it happened. But after Carter won the 1976 election, it soon became clear that the powers within the campaign, besides Carter himself, were Hamilton Jordan and Jody Powell, two of his trusted aides, and they distrusted James Watson. So when Carter won the election, 
and Watson expected to be named transition director, Carter was squeamish about it. He gave little power to Watson and didn't really implement his plan. He made it clear that he trusted Jordan and Powell, who had sort of ganged up on Watson, more. Most notably, and in one of the few recent presidents to do this, he chose no chief of staff, making himself the chief of staff, in a sense, with about eight to ten people directly reporting to Carter. This was the so-called spokes-of-the-wheel system of management that uh, John Kennedy had employed. As a result, Carter's administration would suffer from a lack of direction and focus. Carter, despite his photographic memory and the brain of a nuclear engineer, could not prioritize the actions of himself or his White House accordingly. He ended up with many domestic and foreign policy failures. Ronald Reagan's team learned from Carter, and by contrast, Carter chose, after some internal politics, James Baker as his chief of staff. James Baker would go on to be a Treasury Secretary, Secretary of State, campaign manager for George W. Bush Sr. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Reagan spent the time between election and inauguration wooing official Washington, and this helped to win him support for his agenda. And it helped him to win support in advance for his agenda. The friendly transition between Reagan and Bush Sr. would go smoothly, but the 12-year gap of a Democrat in the White House between Carter and Clinton would affect the latter's transition. Twelve years since a Democrat had been in the White House, Jimmy Carter had had only one term. Those people were not overly experienced. And it was eight years before that when a Democrat had last seen the office. So now the Carter White House was not an overly successful one, and experienced players were limited from there. Clinton picked up Carter's number two foreign policy official, Warren Christopher, which was seen by many as a good pick. And his cabinet featured some appointees from Congress, um, It was necessary for Clinton to dip into Congress to get executive appointees. Les Aspen, congressman from Wisconsin for defense. Leon Panetta from California for his budget office. The lack of Democrats with executive experience forced them picking people from Congress. They're not always the best source of managers. They're legislators, they're debaters, not always managers. And his desire to have a cabinet that looked like America forced him to choose inexperienced people. It was a noble goal to name the first woman attorney general. However, there weren't a lot of candidates with extensive legal experience. Clinton went on to to name corporate lawyer Zoe Baird. When there was a disclosure about a problem with an illegal alien that uh, Baird had used as a nanny, he was then forced after a couple of stumbles to pick Janet Reno, a Miami prosecutor, who turned out to be a well qualified attorney general and lasted all eight years of the Clinton administration, openly in conflict with Clinton on many issues and operated independently with the White House on uh, you know, the Waco, Texas situation and the Elian Gonzalez matters. 
uh, causing some embarrassment to the Clinton administration. Like Carter, Clinton battled between wanting to appoint people he trusted, those he'd worked with in Arkansas, and people who could govern well or who knew official Washington. For chief of staff, he chose Mac McLarty, an Arkansas state representative and the CEO of a utility company. McLarty begged Clinton off and told him to select someone else for the job, but Clinton insisted, and of course McLarty could not say no. He was ill-prepared for Washington, and unlike a utility company where his affability was an asset, as chief of staff, McLarty was not prepared to tell people no. This didn't help the transition, which generally lacked focus, as numerous aides battled. Some of the more liberal aides, Robert Reich, the labor secretary, or Paul Begala, who had been in the campaign and took a White House job thereafter, battled with some of the more conservative or moderate uh, business-focused Democrats, such as Gene Sperling and Bob Rubin. That was the one area that Clinton had a good team. It was surprising, uh, not surprisingly, what the Clinton presidency will be most remembered for the economy. Uh, Bob Rubin was an executive at Goldman Sachs. Clinton asked him if he was interested in the Treasury job, and he very smartly said no, he'd uh, not be an asset in selling Clinton's economic plan to Congress. Urged, Rubin urged Clinton to pick a respected senator, such as Lloyd Benson, and Rubin accepted the assistant Treasury job. He would later become Treasury Secretary himself. Still, there were problems. Clinton had promised to pass an economic recovery plan within 100 days. He'd also planned, uh, he'd also promised a health care plan, NAFTA, and a middle-class tax cut. The promise to pass a recovery plan in 100 days was a ticking time bomb that had to move through Congress on that deadline, or he'd lose an, a prestige for his presidency. And Congress at the time was controlled by the Democratic Party, but a group of Democrats who didn't feel particularly obliged to Clinton. They had been in power for an awfully long time before Clinton entered the White House. And there was no agreement among Clinton's aides as to what plan to go forward with to improve the economy. Some, like Paul Begala or Robert Reich, wanted a stimulus plan. Rubin and Benston argued that we had to cut the deficit and cut government spending in order to get interest rates up, get the bond market to take notice, and boost the economy that way through credit, through the availability of credit. And to get there, they needed cuts or an increase in taxes. Clinton, in one of the most uh, useful and important moves of his transition, met with Alan Greenspan, who, flown out, who flew out to Little Rock, Arkansas. They met for two and a half hours. Greenspan hinted, that uh, if Clinton made some cuts to, to current budgets and to future budgets, and the numbers, of course, seem ridiculous now, if he could cut the uh, deficit by, say, $240 billion in 1997, that might help the Federal Reserve to lower interest rates. If there were spending cuts, Greenspan thought that tax raises might be acceptable. He didn't approve a specific plan, but gave general indications. Numerous proposals were then floated. A tax increase, COLA freezes, the increase of cost of living on Social Security, uh, BTU tax for energy-consuming devices, but there was no agreement. Only, according to sources, endless meetings, 
with Clinton pontificating on every option, the pros and cons, but avoiding making firm decisions. Bob Rubin was concerned, and he pushed McLarty to have a meeting of all principals to finally decide about the economic plan. This was scheduled for January 7th, 1993. It was only 13 days from inauguration, and the Clinton administration uh, had not decided on an economic plan. The first term of the Clinton administration, with its health care plan of failure, the barely passed budget, NAFTA troubles despite bipartisan support for it, just couldn't seem to do the basics. And it wasn't successful by any objective measure. And that led to the loss of the House for Clinton and the Democrats in 1994. To be fair, the Clinton administration had strong disadvantages. Less experienced people on the team, a poor economy, a smug Congress not beholden to the president, a bad deficit, and unlike now, very big difference, no political will to spend more than what was already, uh, to spend a large amount above what was already in deficit. Something like a $700 billion stimulus plan would have been an ultimate non-starter in 1993, and a very bad partisan atmosphere between Republicans and Democrats in 1993, Republicans who sort of felt the election was stolen from them by the third-party candidate of Ross Perot. Right or wrong, it emboldened uh, Republicans to fight with vigor against President Clinton. The Clinton and Carter transitions, it would seem, are examples of what not to do. Start the planning for transition early. Use the transition to pick and announce a strong and respected cabinet, people with prior experience in Washington. And most importantly, pick a chief of staff and pick a strong chief of staff. By all looks, the Obama administration is learning from these bad examples and from the good ones. With the advantage uh, that the Obama administration has over the, uh, at least the Clinton transition, little less partisan atmosphere, Republicans too stunned from Bush's drop in the polls, from the defection of so many of their party's members to Obama, and from the convincing win of Barack Obama. It's unlikely they'll present the kind of phalanx that they did in 1993 against the uh, Clinton administration. They will oppose the Obama administration. There will be an opposition, an active one, and there will be a serious midterm in 2010. These guys will regroup. It's not going to be the kind of day one partisan atmosphere. The situation just won't allow for it. With nearly all his cabinet picked before the new year, with solid choices, Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State, Bill Richardson as Commerce Secretary, with his national security team praised by even uh, Dick Cheney, leaving in George Bush's Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates, and General Jim Jones being the uh, national security advisor, with a representative cabinet, but with a cabinet chosen also for experience with Hispanics and women in the cabinet.
with Democrats and Republicans, a few Republicans, Ray LaHood as a transportation secretary. He's earning praise for almost every pick that he makes. While Obama has made vague promises to help uh, to fix the health care system, to improve the economy, he avoided the kind of specific promises, such as a middle-class tax cut or an economic program within 100 days that sunk the Clinton administration. Most importantly, Obama has chosen a solid chief of staff who has experience in the Clinton administration and in Congress, and that is Rahm Emanuel, uh, the congressman from Illinois. So long as Emanuel is not mixed up in the scandal with the governor of Illinois and Obama doesn't lose him, this presages a good future for the performance of the Obama administration. Looking through history... The White House is such an active office, especially the modern White House, and the modern president does so much that there's very little time to plan once a president's in the White House. They're too busy with the day-to-day -day news events and running the country. A good transition is critical to historic president or modern president's success. With History Beating Up Politics, I'm Bruce Carlson.